welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Over the uh, past couple of months, we've been looking at a series of uh, talks. We've, we've looked at the life of Joseph and we've looked at the life of Gideon. And I don't know where you're at in Leeds because I know you're doing a similar series. But we're just starting today to look at the life of Nehemiah. Whereabouts are you? You've done the whole lot? Goodness me, you've been getting a crack on. Well, last week we looked at how Gideon led his army, and in fact God led Gideon to lead his army, to overcome at the Battle of Midian. And this week we move on to the third of these Bible characters, Nehemiah. And I'm going to read first of all from uh, the opening of the book of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some of the men of Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity, and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burnt with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and I mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I'm praying before thee now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants. Confessing the, son, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which thou didst command thy servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to a place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are thy servants and thy people, whom thou didst redeem by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Oh Lord God, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name. 
and make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king and it came about in the month Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that wine was before him and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I hadn't been sad in his presence so the king said to me why is your face sad though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, If it please the king and if your servant has found favour before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So here was Nehemiah. He was an Israelite, but he was living away from his homeland. He was living and had become part of an alien culture to him. But notwithstanding that, he had been promoted and he had risen to a place of great responsibility. He was a cupbearer to the king. In some ways, the cupbearer to the king held the very life of the king in his hands. Because it was like a food tester in this country. They would be responsible for making sure people didn't poison the king. But then a, came, a day came in the life of Nehemiah. It started out just like any other day. But at the end of it, he was a changed man. The whole motivation of his life and his expectations about his career and his future were changed. And you know, he's not the only person God did that to. And the other thing is, he's still doing it today. God can do that to you today. On a day that starts off as a normal day like any other, he can come and transform your life. He can, without warning, turn your whole world upside down. There are those in the past who thought, well, I know what my life's got in store for me. I know what my career is. I know my path for the future. But actually, God has a way of breaking through those things that make your ideas of career and future insignificant. And it could be that one day, like Nehemiah did that day, you find that the work of God is something more important. Nehemiah found that that day. He said in his heart, from now on, Zion is my chief delight. From now on, I am living to see that city rebuilt, to see the city of God restored and brought up out of the ruins. That's my top priority. Nehemiah wasn't the first. And do you know what? He wasn't the last. 
There was a day when Moses was out on the hillside looking after some sheep. He was looking after the same sheep as he had been the day before. He was going through the same routine. He might, for all we know, even have been eating the same lunch. And then suddenly he saw a burning bush. He'd never seen one before. Not like this one. And his life was never the same again. The day had started out just like any other. There was another man who started out a day looking after his father's sheep. And that was David. He was just there on the hillside when one of his brothers came rushing up the hill and said to him, David, Samuel's here and he wants to see you. David went off to meet with Samuel and his life was never the same again. One day, Isaiah was in the house of God. Somewhere he spent a lot of his time. Israel's great king had just died and Israel faced the future with concern and uncertainty. And Isaiah must have had that on his heart. And suddenly he saw the Lord. He said, I saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up. And in a moment, his life was changed. And if you read Isaiah and look at what you learn about Isaiah in the first six chapters of the book and compare it with what he's like afterwards, his life was revolutionised. We've looked at Gideon. Poor, frightened Gideon. Hiding in a wine press. The least of the least. When the angel of the Lord spoke to him. And that was his turning point. In the New Testament you can look at Paul. He was virtually still shouting out threats and promising to slaughter Christians in the church that he was persecuting when he saw the light, quite literally. And he turned his back on what he'd been doing and started in a new direction. And Paul wasn't the last. One day, God-fearing Nehemiah was in his safe, secure job serving the king when he quite simply heard some news. But it changed his life completely. The whole course of it was turned around in a few minutes. And the news, what was it he heard? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are burnt with fire. To look at the history of this, some years earlier, the pioneers had returned from captivity in Babylon and had gone back to Jerusalem promising to rebuild it from ruins. Because in their eyes, the city of God had been desecrated. Now, Nehemiah and the contemporaries of him at that time thought that the rebuilding was well underway. But the truth was something altogether different. Zion, Jerusalem, was nothing more than a pathetic heap of rubble. 
The walls were broken down and people could just walk into the city. The gates were burnt and they offered no protection from the enemy. And so it says, the people who were living there were in great distress. They were feeling shame and reproach. And Nehemiah was overwhelmed with what he felt about that. He was devastated. As we look at that, you know, we have to remind ourselves, these days, I think we're bad hearers of news. Do you, do you understand what I mean by that? In, in Mark 4, Jesus said, if anyone has ears, let him hear. Consider carefully what he, you hear, he continues. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And even more. Jesus said, consider carefully what you hear. In today's world, we have so much information that comes to us through the television, the internet, the radio, newspapers and friends. That even devastating news hits us and somehow we remain passive. We remain a bit indifferent because we are so preoccupied with other things. You might watch the news and you see news about a drought in Africa and you can be deeply moved for a moment or two because the news moves on and you hear about something that's happening in Pakistan or somewhere else in the world. And so often, even when the news finishes, we go on to watch the next programme, forgetting what moved us so deeply only moments before. We hear the news. We hear it all the time. But we don't know how to listen to it. Jesus said, consider carefully what you hear. Nehemiah heard about the plight affecting Jerusalem. And that was all it took. He was devastated. <sighs> if only at times we were so sensitive to the news that God brings to us. Have you ever been driving along the motorway listening to the radio? You hear one tune after another. And then there might be an appeal for a charity. Somehow, it doesn't sink in. Yet, the announcer interrupts and tells us of an accident on the motorway system. And suddenly, it has our full attention for that brief moment until we work out whether it affects our journey or not. They tell you where the accident is. They name the place. And just once in a while, if it's something very major, and you know you have friends or family in that area, you might actually think about making a phone call. You're gripped. You pull over. You get out your mobile phone and start to find out if your loved ones are okay. For 
to those who live, have lived through some of history's important events, they will tell you they can remember exactly where they were doing, what, sorry, where they were and what they were doing when those events happened. The ones that tend to get most people are for those who are old enough when Kennedy was assassinated. They know where they were when they heard the news. When Diana died, they know where they were when they heard the news. And that's how we need to listen to things that are on God's agenda. In Matthew 13 it says, Jesus said, For the heart of his people have become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. In Matthew 25 it says, Then he will say to those on his left, and this is talking about the end days, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Did you hear that? Have you heard the news that God is giving us? Or is it true that our hearing has become dull? That we find it difficult to hear when God says they will go away into eternal punishment? Jesus said, be careful about how you hear. The people's hearts have become dull. Their ears barely hear. But God says from heaven something different. He says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. He understands about life and death. He understands about eternity because he's dwelt with me throughout eternity and shared it with me. He knows and he can speak with authority about these things. Hear him. Hear him. He is my beloved son. Have we heard the news that God brings to us? Has it gripped us? Has it devastated us like the news about Jerusalem gripped and devastated Nehemiah? Because there's another piece of news that God brings to us. It's simple. Jesus wants a spotless, perfect bride. And that is what God is raising up in our days and the days to come. That's what he wants. And that is what he's going to have. There's no question about it. So when we consider how the glorious church should be, are we overwhelmed by that thought and that vision that Jesus wants a spotless, perfect bride? Has that gripped us? We have to realise that God declared that Jesus should die for a glorious church. 
And we need to be totally immersed in that vision if we want to be really useful to God. If we look at the situation in the church today and if we look at our own society, we can say we live in a city where the walls are broken down, where the gates are burnt and broken. We live in a society that says everything is acceptable. The walls are broken down. They no longer divide what is acceptable from what isn't. In the beginning, God separated light and darkness. And you know what? Ever since that first creative act, he's carried on separating. He separates good from bad. And yet in our society, the walls are crumbling. Our nation is afflicted with disease, many of which and much of which owes itself to promiscuity. And yet the question people ask isn't how can we stop this promiscuity, but actually how can we cure AIDS? How can we cure these diseases? And those who stand up with biblical values such as purity get slated in the media. But there's worse. The walls have come down in church life as well. Even the newspapers are reporting it. They're reporting ministers giving blessings to gay marriages. Where's the wall gone that says this is not acceptable in the church of God? I want to read you something that shows all too clearly what the world thinks of the church. This was in a national newspaper and it was written by a political journalist. Okay, so this wasn't uh, Ruth Gledhill in the Times, who is a religious correspondent. This was a political expert, and it was under the heading of You Can't Sell Faith Like Cornflakes. Okay? Over the past generation, a process of demoralisation has set in amongst the clergy. Watching their flocks diminish, they've tended to hold less strongly to their own convictions. Or rather, they've found secular substitutes for a dogmatic religious faith which is waning. In the place of Christianity, of the Ten Commandments, they've put their Christianity of social welfare. They concern themselves with what they imagine are the burning topical issues. They hold debates on nuclear weapons. Some of them campaign actively on behalf of pacifist bodies. They preach sermons on unemployment and sometimes they behave as though they were little more than social workers. I'm sorry to any social workers that are here, but that's what it said. Sometimes they try to usurp the functions of government ministers. They are almost invariably well-meaning, progressive-minded, humanitarian, and to use the current catchphrase, caring and compassionate. 
But there's nothing more to distinguish these high-minded bishops, deans, canons and reverends from any other category of do-gooder. The charismatic element seems to have gone. They are manifestly not divinely inspired. There is not much faith in their hearts or fire in their bellies. And it shows. It seems to me that there is absolutely no future for the church as a social welfare institution. At the same time, the church has watered down its teaching on almost all aspects of morality. If young people seek guidance on sexual conduct, for instance, they are no longer offered definite rules, but given polysyllabic fudge and mush. People turn to God not in order to seek their own materialistic, earthly desires, but to escape from them. The church is meant to offer something which is better and ennobling. Religion is not about this world, it is about the next. Christianity is not a secular crusade for social improvements. It is an alternative to materialism. A rejection of the world and the flesh. It concentrates instead on the eternal and the divine. The notion that it can be democratised and popularised is nonsense. It operates on the frontiers of human understanding and makes heroic demands of its adherents. That indeed is precisely its appeal. Because it is so totally and constitutionally different from anything else found in the world. Of course, to preach this kind of Christianity, the only true kind, requires a passionate faith, which is very uncharacteristic of many churchmen. Preferring to operate with the techniques of modern religious sociology, they are in fact getting absolutely nowhere. And that was a secular journalist. Now admittedly, he doesn't conclude by trying to give biblical answers, but it shows how clearly he can see the shambles that the church is in. He's saying, look, they're being compassionate and they're caring, but just like any other do-gooders, where is their distinctive message? Aren't they supposed to be different and distinctive? And his conclusion is that the whole thing is humbug. The world regards the church as irrelevant to modern day living. We need to hear that news. The walls of the church are down. The gates aren't there. Anyone can walk in and say anything. And that's where the story of Nehemiah starts. It's when people, young and old, men and women, like Nehemiah, hear the news in such a way that it triggers something within them. And they cry out to God. And they cry, enough! We can't stand this any longer. Sorry to wake you, Martin. God has said that his city... 
his church will be the joy of the whole earth. And yet the world says it's humbug. The realisation has to come to us, and it has to come to us with such a force that we can't ignore it any longer. Just like we hear of the occupants of Jerusalem when it says they felt shame. That's how we should feel that this is going on in God's church. And Nehemiah felt that spark within him that triggered something deep inside, deep in his spirit. I'll ask you, has it happened to you yet? Has the church become your major occupation and motivation in your life? Can you truly say the kingdom of God comes first? Everything else comes second. And for some of us, that will mean that we have to give our lives to rebuilding those walls. Rebuilding the city of God. But Nehemiah, first of all, he heard the news. His response was to cry out to God. In his need, Nehemiah wept, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed. Now it would be all too easy to make your first response one of action. But that wasn't what he did. He cried out to God. And actually, very often, if our first response is one of action, it's because we haven't seen the magnitude of the problem. We simply haven't understood it. Because if we'd seen the magnitude of the problem, we'd realise that we are totally ineffective to do anything about it. To put on a meeting, it won't change things enough. It would be like giving aspirin to someone dying from cancer. It would be a hopeless endeavour. We have to look at the church and fall down and mourn and pray. Now, some will find that hard and some will feel at ease because they might be in the biggest church in town. In this town, that's just about 200 But what is 200 people in a town of nearly 300,000? So if our churches were the largest in town, what is that against the vast crowds that don't yet know that Jesus is alive and think the church is a joke? We need to let that fact hurt us. We need to let it penetrate us right to our emotional core. When Nehemiah thought about Jerusalem, the reality of it overwhelmed him. And until we've cried over the ruins that the church is in, we can't devote ourselves to rebuilding the wall. Even if we were to see next week 20 or 30 extra people crowding in with us, we might be tempted to think we'd won the jackpot, mightn't we? But actually, there are still thousands upon thousands living within a stone's throw of here that are disinterested in Jesus. And that 
reality must overwhelm us. The Bible doesn't say, go on, have a go. It doesn't say, blessed are those who know how to use public relations. It doesn't promise growth to those who know how to use the media to their advantage. What it does say is, blessed are those who know how to mourn. Why? Because if you look in Matthew 5, verse 4, it says, Blessed are those who know how to mourn, because they will be comforted. Now, comforted actually isn't a very good translation of the word. It's not very helpful, because in our modern society, comfort tends to be when you put an arm around someone who's distressed, and you lean them against your shoulder and hold their head, and you pat them and you say, Oh, there. A better translation for comforted is fortified. When the Bible was first translated into English, comfort was a fine translation. But today we think about comfy chairs with cushions. But actually the Bible means something more than that. The Bible promises that he will send the comforter. And actually that someone who will build us up, equip us, encourage us. And we need to understand that because sometimes our whole thinking about the Holy Spirit and his ministry is affected by that word comforter. When Wycliffe first put pen to paper, the word he translated as comforter meant to fortify, to strengthen, to provoke or to stir up. It comes from the Latin, comfortis, with strength. Today it means. I believe Nehemiah grieved. I think you could have probably seen him red-eyed, crying, probably calling out. Lord, this is so disgraceful. This is so shameful that your city should come to this. Now that sort of response is an alien concept to many of us. Even those of us who call ourselves evangelical. Because so often we're coldly evangelical. We stand on our traditions and claim we're true to the Bible. But actually, we need to let the Holy Spirit minister to us. In repentance, we need to admit, Oh God, it is shameful that your house is in ruins. When we humbly begin to agree with God, He can begin to comfort us. Blessed are those who mourn. Because they will be comforted. Nehemiah was overwhelmed by what he'd heard. It consumed him. His chief thought was the city of God is in ruins. He turned to God as his only answer. 
And if we're going to see the church restored, God is our only answer as well. Trying special meetings won't do it. Manipulating the media won't help. We need God. It's as basic as that. But after his mourning, Nehemiah was transformed. He was fortified. And actually he was commissioned. And from that time, nothing that was thrown across his path could deter him. But we're going to look at more about that in a couple of weeks' time. Can I just ask you to stand? We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 